looking at Exodus chapter 32. Now, Exodus 32 is probably a story you have heard most of your life, um, and it is the story of the golden calf. And I want to, you know, I have so many notes like always to see if we can't put these in some sort of thoughtful pattern and way as we look to this passage. Exodus 32, again, falls in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, I think, has two main points. God is making himself known. God is making himself known. That's, that was from the beginning. God told Moses, I'm going to make myself known. God's making himself known to Pharaoh. God's making himself known to the Israelites. So God is, is kind of showing who he is. He gives Moses his name at the bush that's burning and not consumed. He, he's showing, he's revealing his nature and his character to the people of Israel. After they have been in the bondage uh, of Egypt for 400 years, God is now appearing again to make himself known to them. And then that brings us to the second point. He is going to redeem them so he can be with them, right? So he's making himself known so he can, and so he is redeeming them to be with them. The very purpose of God calling them out of the bondage of Egypt is so he can dwell with his people in their presence. He wants to be with his people. And so that's the context we've been looking through over the last seven chapters. Because in the last seven chapters or so, 24, 25, starting there, coming to 32, what God has done is Moses has gone up into the cloud on the mountain. He has met with God, as Moses would say, face to face, an idiom of saying one-on-one, -on -one, they're together. And so he's met with God on the mountain, and God has given him instructions. And y'all remember the instructions he's given. Here is the tent you're going to build for me, the tabernacle. Here are the pieces of furniture you're going to make to be in that tent, including the Ark of the Covenant, including the table for the showbread, including the lampstand that will look like a tree there to be represented, including here's the bread you're going to put in, and every day you're going to change it out. God is telling Moses, here are the directions for you to build me a dwelling place amongst you, to dwell with you. And so this tabernacle will be the dwelling place of God. It will have the outer courts. It will have the inner court. It will have the holy of holies, if you will. And inside that, you put the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool of God representing, as y'all have heard me say a thousand times, his throne is in heaven, his footstool here on earth. This is where God touched down to dwell with his people. And so God is going to dwell with them. Here's the building. And then he says, here's the people that can come into that presence. And here's what they have to do. So he, he teaches him about Aaron's people, the Aaronic priesthood, you know, and so he tells them, here's how they're to dress. Here's what they're to wear. Here's the sacrifices they're to bring. So he gives all of these details down to the very fabric of the outfit of the priests that is required for them to come into the presence of God. And so here's the building, the tent, the tabernacle you're to make. Here's the furniture that's supposed to go into it. Here's the requirements for the priests who will intercede on behalf of the people. And here are the sacrifices to make. And he ends it to Moses by saying, and we are going to rest. You're going to rest in my presence there in your midst. And so it ends there in chapter 
31, verse 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And so now you have the first truly written word of God. And that's these tablets of stone with the commandments on them, written by the very finger of God. And he hands those to Moses. And so Moses has the tablets. God is saying, we have, I've, I've, I've told you everything I need to tell you. You have the tablets now, right? And so that's how it ends in verse 18. And then we get to verse third, third, chapter 32, verse 1. And it goes directly from God, having told Moses all of these to build, told him to rest in him through the Sabbath, gave him the tablets written by his own finger. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for the Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where, what has become of him. So immediately after all of this has happened, you have chapter 32. Now what people have pointed out is they've tentatively called this in some way the fall of Israel. It almost, by the way, parallels the fall of man in, in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, in Genesis 3, you have God dwelling with his people in the Garden of Eden, right? You have God giving his people his word. And then ultimately, in just six verses in Genesis 3, you have Adam and Eve falling into sin and temptation. And now you have the same thing here. God is dwelling with his people. He's with Moses. He's telling him, here's my word. Here you have my word. And immediately in six verses in, in Exodus 32, you have rebellion take place. And everything seems to change after that. And so you see kind of here the, the parallels that, that come up with this. Not only that, you have some weird things that just seemingly shouldn't be so. First of all, you can read over, uh, for those of y'all who've read ahead, and hopefully you have, in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book, it's different from the other four. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of rehashing the history of Israel, right? So he's kind of going over. So, so he's telling the story of what happened before. And so you find in Deuteronomy chapter 10, you find Moses uh, telling this story again, really, I'm, I'm going to Deuteronomy chapter 9. You have Moses telling the story again, and he tells exactly what happens. Verse 10, and the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words, the Lord God, and on them were, oh, that's the same line. Lord has spoken with you in the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. It tells us there in, in Deuteronomy 9 how long Moses was up there on the mountain, right? That's what I was pointing out. Moses was up there 40 days and 40 nights. And so 40 days, 40 nights, month and a half. Y'all, everybody good with that? 40 days, 40 nights, Moses is on the mountain talking in the midst there with God, receiving God's word and the instructions. And so you have that. In those 40 days and 40 nights, just in that quick moment, the people got a little bit restless. 
In just that quick moment, they got restless and they said, look, we see that mountain. In fact, they had heard that mountain not too long before rumble and thunder, right? In fact, they had heard the voice of God come from that mountain. God, in his own voice, gave them the Ten Commandments. And at the end of the ten, they said, that's enough. It's too much. It's too scary. We can't take it. Just speak to Moses. And so, and so ultimately, they had heard that mountain rumble. They had seen what happened. And now they remember some of the elders went halfway up with Moses. And then he was like, no, nah, y'all don't come any further. And then Joshua went a little bit further up with Moses. And then Moses went on into it on his own. And so they had seen him disappear into this cloud uh, that has come down over Sinai that represents the presence of God. And they think maybe he's dead. Maybe he's never coming back. He's been up there a month and a half and he's probably never coming back. So we need to take matters into our own hands ultimately. And so they come to Aaron and they say to Aaron, hey, we need you to do something. We need you to make some God for us. We need you to make a God for us. In fact, he says, up and make gods. Now, just a little bit of Hebrew. We don't always do this, but, but the word for gods is Elohim. And that is a plural word. It's quite normal. It, there's a majestic plural or a divine plural that they talk about, you know, in the Hebrew language. We really do not have a category for that in, in English other than just to say plural. But sometimes Elohim is used to refer to the true God, right? The one true God. And when Elohim is used to refer to one God, then all the verbs and all the other words around it are singular. And so it kind of helps us understand it. Well, here, here it's Elohim, God's, and then the very next phrase, who shall go before us, that's in the plural. So in some sense then, the Hebrew people are saying, we need you to make for us some gods, right? Maybe plural gods. In other words, they have seen idols in all the other ancient Near Eastern peoples. They had seen these things in, in Egypt. And the idol for them made sense. It was fitting into their category because they could make something physical. You want to know God's with you. Well, then you see God's with you because there he is. He's in a cow right here. So, And to us, that may sound like nonsense. To them, it was some category they had that, that, that worked in their mind. And so ultimately, they said, we need you to do that. We need some gods or something made for us. Moses is gone. We don't know where he is. So Aaron said to them, all right, it doesn't even seem. Now, I think that we can assume some things. One translation has it that the people came and contested with Aaron. In other words, they pretty much told Aaron, and Aaron's looking at a crowd of people, and Aaron's like, what am I going to do with this? These, all these people are coming at me and now I've got to do something about it. So he's in a pickle, so he's got to appease him. But whatever the case may be, a little bit later, Aaron's explanation is hogwash. And so it virtually looks like this. And so Aaron, it looks like in our passage, just simply says, all right, we need some gods. I tell you what y'all do. Take off all your jewelry. I can form you a cow. And so ultimately, that's what it happens. Take off the rings of gold that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. 
who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, let's just talk about the craziness of this. Look back with me to chapter 24. Chapter 24 I said was one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. It was a place where we defined worship, what worship looks like. It talks about atonement. It talks about blood sacrifice. It talks about the requirements. It talks about all of that. And after sacrifice was made, remember, you had this progression, worship, sacrifice was made. After that, they communed together. So look with me to verse 9. You've got these burnt offerings that happened. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. you got all this great stuff. And then the blood thrown on the altar. And then verse 9. Then Moses and what? Well, who's the next person? Aaron. Moses and Aaron, old Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And what does it say next? They saw the God of Israel. Now, so Aaron is with Moses, they've made blood sacrifice, they sprinkle it on the altar, and then what do they do? They commune with God. They enter into God's presence. And so remember, we, we talked about this. Anytime you see the physical sight of God in the Old Testament, that's God, the second person in the Trinity, Jesus. Y'all remember that? But also here, this could mean that they're in the presence of the spirit that is with them. And so they're eating in the presence of God. But it says they see him. The intent of the text is to say they see God. And so ultimately, they're eating with him and they see him. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because what's the best interpreter of scripture? Scripture. And so a little bit later in Deuteronomy, you see you see where it says no one sees God and lives, right? And so ultimately we know that what's happening here, most likely I would argue and still do, that this is the, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus in this pre-incarnate state. We saw him under the tree at Mamre with Abraham. We saw him wrestling with Jacob. We'll see him a little bit later in the fire. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And so ultimately, we all know Jesus didn't start in a manger in Bethlehem. He's eternal, and he shows up in the Old Testament in several different places. But the very point of the passage is right before Moses goes up on the mountain, God is with his elders, his leaders, including Aaron. They see him, and they eat together. They commune together. And so ultimately, that's what it says. There was under his feet as was pavement of sapphire, stone, heavens for dark. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They ate in his presence. So you just got to scratch your head. Whenever these people come up and say, hey, we need a God that we can worship. Moses has been gone too long. And Aaron goes, I got it. Y'all give me some rings and let me make you a cow. Now, in what planet does that make any sense to us? Now, don't get me wrong. I love a good cow. But in where does this make sense for Aaron? Aaron capitulates to the people. 
and says, all right, I'll make one for you. But notice what Aaron does. When he hears the people say, that's our God, Aaron does a far greater crime here because what does he say? He makes an altar. They're going to worship. And Aaron made a proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Do y'all see that Lord word right there? My Bible, most Bibles nowadays do this. My Bible has that word in all caps, right? Has everybody got that? L-O-R-D, every one of them's a cap, capital. So my Bible has that in all caps. You know what that means, right? That means it's Yahweh. It's the name that was given to Moses that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter three. So Aaron equates this golden cow with the God of the universe that he has already ate with and spent time with and seen his majesty and his splendor. And he says, here he is. Here he is. So they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, rose up to play. There's no denial that in the passage here, not only are they worshiping a cow, they're claiming that cow is a representation of Yahweh. And they think everything's great. They play. I mean, where else do you find, I mean, these people running through the wilderness, they had all kind of crazy stuff happen to them. Where else do you find it written down that they played? The intent is they are worshiping a false god. They've created their own religion now and they think everything's good. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. When there is no peace. In just six verses, it comes crashing down. I think the text wants us to read this, by the way, and kind of get a little bit frustrated and mad. Because in just a moment, they just forgot everything that happened before. This is an assault on the one true God that has redeemed them and saved them. This is an attack, right, on the one who called them out of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground, crushed their enemies behind them, provided the, the water from the rock for them along the way, the manna falling down every day, came down at Sinai just as he promised he would and showed himself for all of his majesty and splendor. And this is the God who said, I am your God. You are my people. You are my son, Israel, he says. So you're my children and I will always protect. This is the same God who goes even beyond what he did in Egypt. It's the same God who made promises to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now he's fulfilling those promises to prove all of this is true. This six verses should make the children of God today in our own time, us, right? If I'm, I'm including all of us, it should make us angry just as much as, as Genesis chapter three verses one through six should make us angry. Because it's bringing in some assault against the God who saved them and redeemed them, right? And, and, and of course, you find it. So, I'm trying to keep my thoughts together and not get ahead of myself. All of this happens. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. I, like, I actually think this is funny. Go down and get your people. Y'all see that? I'm, you almost have to say it that way. Go down and get your people. 
I'm fed up. Go get your people. Exactly. Y'all know how that works. If you've got children, you know exactly how that works. When your children do something and you say, hey, would you go get your son? How many times y'all heard that, men? Huh? That's exactly what the Lord says here. And the, the, the insinuation is, if they were my people, they would not be following another God. This is a clear break of the commandments. If they were my people, they would be living in obedience to me. If they were my people, they would be trusting me with every day because there's zero reason for them not to trust me. I've done everything for them. If they're my people, they would not be making a cow out of the very gifts I gave them when they exited out of Egypt, the gold that they were wearing. If they're my people, none of this would be happening, but you need to go get your people. And notice when he said that, the Lord knows what he's doing because what does he say next? He says, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. This is exactly what the people says. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, the people didn't give the Lord credit. They gave Moses credit. And notice what that does for them. By giving Moses credit for delivering them, they can easily leave Moses behind. You see what I'm saying? They can easily, he's gone. He delivered us, but he's gone. And so by giving Moses credit, they can easily dismiss Moses too. And say, now it's time for somebody new to step in. And so they dismiss Moses and they go after somebody new. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm about ready to start over. In fact, this is similar, same language, just as we saw in the verses 1 through 6, going back to Genesis 3. This is similar in same language as Genesis chapter 6. Y'all remember what happened in Genesis 6? The people have become wicked, so wicked, that the Lord's wrath burned against them. And what happened there? A little thing called the flood. And God consumed them all. And so God is saying, I'm done. I can do this again. I can, we can start over if we want to. I am done with these people. My wrath is burning. And I love what he says, leave me alone. Leave me alone. So here ultimately what's the crime. Well, I think it's obvious. In this effort, the people have denied Exodus 20 verse 1. Y'all remember that? Exodus 20 verse 1, when the Lord begins to speak there on Mount Sinai, Exodus 20 verse 1 is when he says to them, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 20 verse 1 is the, is the pretext for all of the Ten Commandments. In other words, I have already redeemed you. Now here's how you live because of it. This denies the redemption of God out of Egypt. They are saying it wasn't God who brought us up out of Egypt. It was Moses. They're denying his redemption. Not only that, they're denying chapter 20, verse 1. They go and they break the very laws that God gave. He says in chapter 20, verse 2, right? 
You shall have no other gods before me. The making of this calf is a direct violation of the first commandment. But not only that, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or anything that is earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers. I can't stand when people don't tell me the rules before the game starts. Can y'all? It's frustrating. You know what I mean? Like you're in it. And then all of a sudden they don't tell you the rules or you're doing something and somebody fusses you for doing something you didn't know you, didn't, you weren't supposed to do. I can't stand that. Well, God never has done that. God told him straight up. If you bow down to another image, if you bow down to another God, my wrath will burn against that. He let them know from the beginning. He hadn't hidden any of this. It's not like Exodus 32, they're caught off guard. It's not like they're sitting there going, oh, we didn't know we couldn't make a cow and bow down to it. Sorry. You know, you can't do that. Y'all know how that works too, by the way. Y'all know the word sorry excuses any crime you've ever committed in your life. Just ask my kids. (laughs) We can bring that up again, right? Kids, children. You say, I'm sorry. Okay, my bad. (laughs) You're fine. But here they couldn't even say that because God had already clearly said. They had broken. They had denied God's redemption. They had denied the the fact that there is only one God and they made other gods. And now they're making a carved image and bowing down before it, which makes ultimately no sense. Y'all do know. Y'all do know that the height of foolishness is to worship creation and not the creator. That's Romans 1. Romans 1 is saying the creator has shown himself in all of his majesty and all of his splendor and all of his glory. Why on earth would you ever bow down and give your worship to what is created and not what, who created it? It doesn't make any sense. And that's the height of foolishness. And so here, that's what he's done. They've done. They've, they've broken the, the, the call of God in redemption. They've broken the first commandment. They've broken the second commandment. And by the way, you cannot make God. If you can make God, he ain't God. Y'all know how that principle works, right? That's why I say the height of foolishness is worshiping the created and not the creator. Because if you can make it, then you're power over it. You're greater than it. And so this, it's just nonsense. And so the Lord, this is foolishness. But not only that, they break the third commandment, right? They break the, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They had used Yahweh as the name of this cow. Ultimately, they had broken all of these. And this stands against them. And the Lord says, my wrath burns. An interesting tw- twist here in the text, though is verse 11, but Moses, I like it. God's wrath, but leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm angry and I'm ready to blot him out. But Moses, but Moses implored the Lord, his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? He reminds God first Let's see Moses' argument here to the Lord. He reminds God, these are your people. When God says, go get your people, he reminds them, no, these are your people, God. You delivered them. You saved them. They are yours. But not only that, why should the Egyptians say, 
With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them for the face of the earth. He tells God, you are the one who saved them and redeemed them. But then he calls upon God's own character in his own story and says, look, you don't, you, this is not who you are. You're not the God who calls them out of Egypt and kills them in the desert. That's not who you are. You're a God who keeps his promises and he's faithful. He reminds God of his own character here. And then finally he comes on, on down after reminding of his good name and his good character. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised you I'll give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses says, remember your redemption of these people. Remember your holy name and do, you, you don't want to waste that. And remember your promises that go all the way back to Abraham. He calls on the Lord here to remember who he is and what he's done. And what I want you to know is this is not change that's happening in God. This is God, Moses calling God to be consistent with who he is. Consistent with who he is. Not change who he is, be consistent with who he is. I think we see something great in the character of God here. I really do. Because look at what it says next. And the Lord relented from the disaster that has spoken to bringing on his people. Now, I want to be clear that there's much in this text that's hard. I mean, it's not like we can just talk about the character and nature of God and go, everybody go, oh, that's cool. I mean, there's some difficult things to understand in how, how, how creation works and how everything goes together and how God's sovereignty fits with our responsibility. There's difficult things there. But we want to understand that the scripture never sees those or tries to explain those in some difficult way. It just assumes all of those, right? And so we have here God's character on display and God is love. But y'all know just as much as God is love, he is also wrath and judgment. He's a perfect God. And so those two things are there. And so here you see the wrath of God is burning up. And what does Moses do? He cries out to God as an intercessor on behalf of the people of Israel and says, don't forget your great name and your mercy, your grace. Don't forget that. And it's like as if the Lord is saying in his way, one, this teaches us that prayer actually matters, first of all. Why does it matter? Because God makes it matter. Not only do the ends happen, but the means by which we get there have also been determined by God. And the means by which we get to the end of all things is that God would use his people to call out to his name. And so ultimately here, this salvation is taking place. This, this change is happening because Moses calls out to God and he says, remember your great name. And how is God's name? And this is why I believe this. God's glory is most seen. Y'all ready for this? God's glory is most seen in his salvation of unworthy people. In his grace. That's when he's most glorified in the display of his grace. And so Moses calls on his grace now to say, don't squash them. Don't end them. Remember your great name. Remember your salvation. Remember your promises. And the Lord follows. And so then Moses turns and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. 
And I love this scene. I mean, like, there's so much in this you can learn about parenting. You know what I'm saying? Have y'all ever thought about teaching on parenting and going to Exodus 32? Because it would work. Because Moses pleads on behalf of the people and the Lord relents. And so Moses now, what's he going to do? Y'all know how these conversations work. Sometimes it's mom, sometimes it's dad. You know what I'm saying? I can't believe them kids did it. I can't believe they did it. And then, and then like the mom swoops in and says, it's going to be okay. It's, you can't, you can't do, go crazy. You can't do all this stuff. And oh, all right, you're right, you're right. And then the mom's like, I'll handle it. And then when the mom leaves, what does the mom say? I'm going to kill them kids. Where are they at? <laughs> That's exactly what happens right here. So Moses is like, Lord, you, your name, you're great. You've got your promises. You'll keep those. Remember your grace upon your people. Remember what you said in, in, in Genesis chapter 9 when you said you'll never blot them out again. You're going to redeem them. Remember that, Lord. That's what you're doing. And Moses says, thank you, Lord. Amen. And he heads down the mountain. He says, I'm about to bust these kids. Two tablets in his hands, both sides, front and back were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. Remember, Joshua's with them. He always, Joshua's always stay out of trouble. And so ultimately, he said to them, it's not the sound of shouting or victory. They're down there playing. It's not the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf. He saw the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets probably at somebody out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, made the people of Israel drink it. I'm telling y'all right now, that was a parenting attack right there. <laughs> that joker slams it. You think, I mean, y'all ever been, I mean, again, I, I'm talking about parenting. Is Allison in here? She was here. She may have had to go help somebody. Good, she's not here. I can keep going. <laughs> you have, you remember, I'm talking about parenting. Y'all know how this works too. I remember seeing this before. When you see your, your, your parents in their anger get some kind of crazy look in their eyes. I remember one time I said a bad word. It was in the Bible. Just to let you know what it was. Just to let you know what it was. Balaam was riding on it. And it started talking. And I said that word. And I saw that look in my mama's eyes. And the next thing I know, I was out here a call. Come here now. And sure enough, she was in the bathroom. And sure enough, you know what she had in her hand? Oh, man, a bar of soap. And I swear she didn't stop until it was in my teeth. It was all stuck. I had to, I think I flossed for the first time in my life after that. This is what's happening here. But the symbolism's incredible. Because when Moses breaks these stones that are at this time appearance of the promises of God, he's saying the covenant is broken itself. What you've done is disastrous. 
I mean, ultimately, that's what we want as parents, too. We want to help people to see, our children to see the consequences of their actions and how those consequences are disastrous. And Moses takes these tablets that God himself wrote with his finger in them that should be a prized possession for the people of God that represents the glorious name of Yahweh in their midst, in their presence, the standards by which they've been called to and saved to through redemption, and he smashes them on the ground. And then he takes this this nonsense of a cow that they make and he burns it to nothing, grinds it down to powder, puts it in the river and gives them the cup and says, you better drink every drop of this. They will ingest their sinfulness. They will take in their wickedness. They will bear the weight of it and they're not going to get to the other side thinking what they did was okay or they got away with it. Because that would be even more disastrous. For them to think in some way what they just did was, you know, it was just a simply silly mistake. Moses is saying to them, you have messed with a holy God. You have rebelled against the one who saved you out of Egypt. You have denied the word of God in your own life and disobeyed his commandments You have broken a relationship that was there and getting started. And that is what sin does. It's what it did in Genesis 3. It's what it does here. In fact, if you look over, because I don't have much time left. I mean, I feel like I could go for another hour or two. Y'all may not like that. But if you look over, when they head off into to move on from, from Sinai. It says in verse 34, but now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. In other words, he says, you're going to go now. The angel will lead before you and you're going to go. I'll lead you out, but I'm not going to be in your midst. I'm not going to be present with you. Moses wants to make sure they see the disaster of what all this is. The idol was an attempt to guarantee God's presence with them. They were trying to short circuit the promises of God. But what it only displayed is they had no trust of the God who had saved them and redeemed them. And what it also displayed is not only they have no trust, they wanted control. And God says to them, you, my friends, in verse Verse 25, you have broken loose. You've broken loose from me. You're wild. Aaron had been confronted by Moses. Moses looks at him and says, what did this people do to you that you have such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people. They said on evil, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And, and, and as for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. They gave it to me. I threw it in the fire. Out came the cow. I think you can tell that Moses didn't like his answer. There's some people in this world, and hopefully none of them are present here, who are looking for a religion that really makes no demands on their life. You're looking for a religion that makes no demands and only offers you 
rewards. What you think you might deserve. What you think that you should be good. There's looking for a religion that dazzles and entertains a golden cow on display and playing and singing around it. They're looking for a religion which there's no waiting. You don't have to be patient. There's no waiting there. There's no emptiness. There's no moments of silence. You're looking for all of that religion. And when that's what you're looking for, usually you can find an Aaron who will give it to you. You see, we live in some sense, some time, some understanding of a way that we think instant gratification is what we deserve. And really, Really, the heart of all of our sinfulness comes from a impatience with what we think God should give us and when he should give it to us. So we live in an idea and a fashion of instant gratification. When God says, I will refine my people in the fire of my presence. And sometimes the best thing for the people to do is just simply wait, be still, and know he is God. And if you want a religion that fits into your own little fold, your own little idea, anytime people try to fashion Jesus into their own little fancy little Jesus, their own little fancy little God that fits, they always, that God and that Jesus always ends up looking a lot like they do, right? And if that's what you want, you can probably find you an Aaron out there that will give it to you. And Moses is saying, that is disastrous. But something new is introduced. And I got 40 seconds to tell you what it is. Something new is introduced here. that didn't happen in Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, when the people turned wicked and failed, God judged and brought judgment and condemnation on it. But here in this passage, we get introduced to the intercessor to the one who will plead on behalf of the people, to the one who will call on God and his character and his good name and his promises and says, don't forget that. Don't forget that. And then getting introduced to Moses, the intercessor, know that Moses, a little bit later in Deuteronomy, says what? There is one coming who is greater than I am. And he's not just going to intercede for you in these little spouts. And listen, man, God isn't being, he isn't being terrible here. God put up with all their grumbling. They grumbled about food. He gave them that. They grumbled about, uh, they didn't like the manna. He gave them quail. They grumbled about water. He gave them. God can deal with our grumbling. It is the clear, the clear rejection and rebellion of who he is and what he's done that he cannot stomach. And so he says, that, my friends, that cup the cup of that sin will be drunk. It will go down. In fact, that language is used throughout the scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 25 says, bring the wicked nations to me and they will drink the cup of my wrath. Isaiah chapter 51 says the exact same thing. Bring those who are my enemies and they will drink the cup of my wrath, right? And I don't want y'all to think that God looks at our sinfulness and just kind of said, you know what? I'll just pour the cup out over here and just 
act like it doesn't exist. Because I do believe many of y'all remember that on the night he was betrayed, there in the garden, Jesus cries out, sweat coming out of him like blood, right? Or blood like sweat, anguish over it. And what is his cry to God? Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And there on the cross, the wrath of God against sin, our sin, and the mercy of God come together. And Jesus drinks this cup to the very last drop. So there is none left for his people. He intercedes for us. My friends, it's not because God just said, let me sweep your sin under the rug that we can be his people and he can be our God. It's not just because he said, you know what, I'll overlook that so that he can dwell with us in eternal heaven. No. God took all of our sin, ground it up in a powder, put it in a cup, and Jesus drank it for us, ingested it all, so that there is no wrath of God left. That's what he did on the cross. Our great intercessor interceded on our behalf. The one greater than Moses has come. May we never dare, dare to go against his salvation and redemption. To deny or doubt his word, he's faithful. To reject, to reject his calling in our life and turn away from him in disobedience. But just as he, just as he has sent his son to intercede for us and take the wrath that we deserve and drank it to every last drop so there's not one drop left for any of us to drink anymore, may we rejoice and follow him and praise his name. Our hearts, as one theologian has said, are like idol factories themselves. And before we look at these people and say, God, I can't believe they did that nonsense, how often do we put things in the front of God ourselves? Our prayer is that we will be faithful to follow, faithful to love, faithful to serve, because he was faithful to fulfill his promises for us and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ, for his truth, for his word. Thank you, God, that in your goodness and faithfulness, we have salvation that has been purchased on our behalf. And the wrath that we deserve has been drunk to every last drop by Christ himself. And so now all we know is salvation. And we can say, just as Paul does, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. We'll see y'all Sunday.